Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 273, recorded March 1st, 2022. And I'm Brian Aachen. I'm Michael Kennedy. Well, welcome, Michael. It's good to yeah. have us here. So It's great to see you, see you as always. It feels like spring is almost here. It's March. I can't believe it. So pretty awesome. Yeah. Fun to be talking Python with you. Yeah. So uh, should we kick it off with your first item? Let's do it. I'm a big fan of science, math, and all those things. And I came across this article because I was reading about science, not because I was reading about Python. But then I thought, oh, there has to be a Python story here. Let's get into it and see if I can track it down. And wow, was it not easy to find. So here's the deal. I saw an article over on sciencealert.com called Physics Breakthrough as AI Successfully Controls Plasma in a Nuclear Fusion Experiment. That's so cool. Tell me. That's amazing, right? So let me put a few things together here. Nuclear fusion, not fission. That's the kind of nuclear we want. That is harnessing the sun with no negative effects to like turn hydrogen into helium and so on, right? If we could harness that, that's like free, super easy energy forever. It's incredible, right? So people have been working on this for a long time. The way that I understand, which is probably pretty, you know, piecemeal that it works is you put some kind of thing, some kind of uh, material like hydrogen or something in the middle, and then you blast it with tons of energy, but then it creates this plasma. You've got to control with lasers and magnets on how you basically keep the pressure high enough in addition to just the heat to actually make the fusion work, right? So there's been some some success like, hey, we got fusion to work for a while. It just took more energy than it put out. So, you know, it's not a super great power plant, but it, it, it did do the science thing, right? Yeah. So here's the deal. This article says they've used artificial intelligence to teach it how to make instantaneous or near instantaneous adjustments to the magnetic field mm. and the lasers in order to actually get better results with fusion, right? So take it farther along. And it says in a joint effort... Um, the Swiss Plasma Center and artificial intelligence research company DeepMind, they used deep reinforcement learning to study the nuances of plasma behavior and control inside a fusion tokamak. That's the donut-shaped thing that where the reaction happens. And they're able to make a bunch of small adjustments really quickly in order to get better results. And it's, it's pretty wild that they did that with AI, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. there's definitely Python in there somewhere. You just know it. Exactly. So I'm like, all right, where is this? So I went through and it, they talk about the findings being in nature, some of the articles that they're referencing. So there's some like deep, as in not super engaging sort of scientific articles, like the you know traditional academic style of writing that you got to dive into and then like follow a bunch of links. But eventually in there, you will find that there is some uh, cool science stuff going on and Python is at the heart of it. So uh, it's probably not worth going into too much of the details of how it, it's actually happening, but it's the, the Python side of things. But I just thought it was super cool that, look, here's one of the most exciting things happening in energy and for the climate and for all sorts of things. Yeah. And AI and Python are pushing it forward. That's crazy. And that's what we need for a Mr. Fusion so that we can make flying cars and, uh, and, and time traveling cars too. Exactly. I mean, Marty McFly and Doc, they go and they throw their uh, their banana peel on the back of the DeLorean, right? You've got to have one of these tokamaks to make it roll and got to have Python in yeah. the car. Come on. Obviously. 
So cool. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> All right. Well, take us back to something more concrete. Well, okay. So I'm pretty excited about this. It's a, it's a minor thing, uh, but maybe not too minor. Uh, PEP 680 has been uh, accepted standards track for Python 3.11. PEP 680 is Tomolib support. So support for parsing Tomol in the standard library. We haven't had it yet. That's awesome. So uh, it uh, we've got JSON, we've got CSV. Why not? Right. We've got XML. Well, and one of the um, and now that we we've uh, Pip uses Tomol for PyProject.Tomol, but um, and anyway, so we kind of need. I think it'd be cool to have it in the standard library. I think it's fine to have other outside supports. So what what they're doing is. Uh, and if uh, people don't, there's some rationale here, but, uh, you know, just think it's easier than normal. So Tomol is, I like Tomol for, because it's just, I don't know, it's an easy format to read. It's better than any and some other stuff. And, and for people who don't know, it feels any like, like the .ini file style where you've kind of got like section headers and then key value bits. Yeah. And it doesn't, and often it doesn't like you can use you can use black and write a pyproject.toml file without even really knowing anything about toml so it's pretty straightforward but we didn't have a way built into the standard library to just use it so um that's this is this pep uh one of the things there uh interesting bits about it is it's only reading so we're it's only adding support for reading uh toml so there's a a load and a load load s so you can load a, a toml file or you can load a string and that's it um and it outputs a dictionary um so and that 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 makes sense you you're just getting a, a toml object and getting turning it into to a dictionary so you can use it um but uh this is built on top of uh tomly so tomly is being used as a as as the as the library to basically there's an open source project called Tomly, which a lot of projects are using. Uh, I think this is the one that PyTest is using and quite a few projects are, have switched to this. It's really fast. It's nice, but it supports like writing as well, but, uh, yeah, writing and code and dumb bass and all those things. Yeah. Right. right. So, so, but that's, um, that's not the part that's going to get supported. And I think that's, I think that's fine, um, to just have reading built into, to, into sure some like file that. formats so. like text and and csv and whatnot like reading and writing is super common right but these are way more likely to be used as configuration files that drive app startup and like hide secrets you know you put your secrets in there and don't put in git or something like that whatever right Th those are the kind of uk use cases i i would see and so in that case reading reading seems fine you could always add writing later you just can't take it away if you add it too soon right Right. Um, but, <laughs> but also like, I, I don't, I don't, and I'm sure there are reasons to, to need to write it. Um, but, um, I, I don't, <laughs> you know, it's, it's mostly people write it and computers read it sort of thing. But, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Some kind of editor writes it and then you read it. Yeah. So <laughs> fantastic. All right. Well, cool. Very nice to see that one coming along. Um, Alvaro out in the audience. Hello there. It says Hummel just reached version 1.0 not so long ago. So maybe that also has some kind of impact on the willingness. Like, all right, the file format is stable. Now we can actually start to support it in the library. That's true. And they, and we we do support Python releases for a long time. So that it probably needed to be V1 at least. Yeah. So 
Yeah. And Sam also says there's a lot of stylistic choices for how you write Tommel files. Like we need a black for Tommel, not not to drive Tom, not to configure black, but something that then goes against Tommel files and you know makes them consistent. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, but you could. Yeah, you could. You could bake that in. All right. What have I got next here? I've got uh, sticking on the internals here. I want to talk about thread locals in Python. Okay. So last time we had Calvin on and I spoke about this crazy async running thing that I had built. And boy, is it working well. I, like I said, it, it is truly horrifying to think about what it's doing, but it actually works perfectly. So there it is. But one of the challenges that it has is it, it doesn't like it if you call back into it again. And I talked about the, um, the Nest async IO project last time which maybe will solve it. I tried those and it wasn't working, but it could have been like at a different iteration before I finally realized like, no, I have to go all in on this threading, like isolate all that execution into one place where we can control it. So maybe it would work, but I just wanted to talk about thread locals in Python, which I thought were pretty easy uh, and pretty interesting. So I've got this stuff running over there. And one thing that would be nice is each, there's different threads calling into the system to say, schedule some work for me, basically. Puts it on a queue, the queue runs it on this like controlled loop, and then it sends back the result. The problem is if, if one function calls that to put in work, and then as part of doing that work, the function itself somewhere deep down like wraps that around, it doesn't really like the recursion aspect very much. So what I thought is, well, how do I figure out, well, this thread has running work, and if it calls again, you know, raise an exception and say, like, you need to adjust the way you're calling this library. It's not working right. Oh, Instead yeah. of just like doing some weird thing. So what I think I might do, and I'm not totally sure it will work perfectly, but the idea is certainly useful for all sorts of things is to use a thread local variable. Now, when I thought about thread local variables, I've used them in other languages and I had no idea how to do them in Python. It turns out to be incredibly easy you just say go to threading the threading module and you say local that becomes like a dynamic class that you can just start assigning values to so in the example that i'm linking to it says you get a my data thing which is a thread local hmm. data blob whatever so you could say like uh my data dot x equals one my data dot list equals whatever and then that will store that data but it will store it on a per thread basis oh, so each thread has sees a different value so for example what i could do is say thread, you know, at the beginning of the call, like I have running work. Yes. At the end, you know, roll that back. And if I ever call in to schedule some work and the thread local says I'm doing, I have active work running. Well, there's that error case that I talked about. And I don't have to do weird things like put different IDs of threads into database into like a dictionary and then like check that and then lock it. And like all sorts, of, I can just say this thread has like a running state for my little scenario. What do you think? I think that's great. I think it's interesting. Yeah, it is, right? Yeah. And it's, right, not too hard. Just create one of these little local things, interact with it in a thread, and each thread will have basically its own view into that data, which I think is pretty fantastic. So, like a, uh, like a thread version namespace thing. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. It's a cool yeah. little isolation without doing like locks and all sorts of weird stuff that can end up in deadlocks or slowdowns or other stuff. So, Anyway, if you're got scenarios where you're doing threading and you're like, oh, it would be really great if I could dedicate some data just to this particular run and not like a global thing, check this out. It's it's incredibly straightforward nice. to use. Nice. Yeah. Oh, uh, let me pull up one more thing before we move on, Brian. Okay. 
Uh, how about Datadog? Yes, that's also something else that's extremely easy to use. Uh, yeah, thank you, Datadog, for sponsoring this episode. Datadog is a real-time monitoring platform that unifies metrics, traces, and logs into one tightly integrated platform. Datadog APM empowers developer teams to identify anomalies, resolve issues, and improve application performance. Begin collecting stack traces, visualize them as flame graphs, and organize them into profile types such as CPU, I.O., and more. Teams can search for specific profiles, correlate them with distributed traces, and identify slow or underperforming code for analysis and optimization. Plus, with Datadog's APM Live Search, you can perform searches across all across the full stream of integrated traces generated by your application over the last 15 minutes. That's cool. Uh, try Datadog APM free f- with a 14-day free trial, and Datadog will send you a free t-shirt. Visit pythonbytes.fm slash Datadog, or just click the link in your podcast player show notes to get started. Yes, thank you, Datadog. I, I love all the visibility into what's going on. I was just dealing with some crashes and other issues on my uh, on something I was trying to roll out, and some library was conflicting with some other library. They were fighting, and uh, yeah, it's great to be able to just log in and and see what's going on. Yep. Now, before we move off the thread locals, quick uh, audience question. Sam out there says, it might be better to use context vars if you're also working with an invent loop. As far as I know, context vars are the evolved version of thread locals that are aware of async too. That's very interesting. I haven't done anything with context vars, but the way I think async IO works is even though there's a bunch of stuff running from different locations, it's there's one thread. So thread local is useless for that. So that's why Sam is suggesting context vars. The side that schedules the work has nothing to do with async IO in my world. So that's why I was thinking thread local. Mm. Yeah. Uh, it's but good uh, good highlight to say you know. if you're using async, you may not you may need something different though. So. Absolutely. Yeah. So thanks thanks Sam for that. Yeah, so I'm I'm not sure if we've really talked about it much, but um uh I've got I, I came across that article from Trey Hunter called What is a generator function? And like Python, especially, you know, the, the two to three switch, even like uh, dictionary, the items keyword, you know, function to get all the, the dictionary elements out. It doesn't return a list anymore. It returns a generator. And um, and maybe it always did. I don't know. Uh, but there's a whole bunch of stuff that used to return lists that now return generators. And it kind of, they look, they work great. You stick them in a for loop and you're off to the races. But a lot of people are a little timid at first to try to write their own because it's a yield statement instead of a instead of a return. And what do you how do you do it? And so this is a great uh, article by uh, Trey to just say, here's what's going on. It's not that complicated. Um, generally, you just have a you often might have a for loop within your code, and instead of returning all the items, you one by one yield the items. So. Uh, trade goes through some of the more de- some of the details of like how this all works and it's it's pretty interesting it's it's interesting for people to read through it and understand what kind of what's going on behind the scenes so what happens is you your function that has a yield in it it will not return the item right away uh, when somebody calls it it returns an, a, a generator object and that generator object has things like next and mostly that's what we care about um, and next returns the next item that you've returned. And then uh, once you run out of items, it raises a stop iteration uh, exception. 
and that's how it works. But generally, we just don't care about that stuff. We just throw them in a for loop. Um, but it is interesting to to learn some of the details around it. So. Yeah, they they do seem mysterious and tricky, but they're super powerful. The more data that you have, the way better idea it is to not load it all into memory at once. Yeah, and you can do some fun things like um, uh, um, chunking. You can you like if you're uh, returning like your your caller, like let's say, and this, these are fun things to do with this. So let's say you're you're reading from an API or from a file or from a device or something, and um, it has you read like a big chunk of things. Uh, like 20 of them or 256 or something like that, a whole bunch of data at once. But then your caller item, your caller really only wants one at a time. It, within your function, your generator function, you can do fancy stuff like read a whole bunch and then just m meter those out. And when then that's empty, you go and read some more and have yeah. intermittent reads. And this will save time for, especially when you're not, you're not reading everything often. Sometimes the caller will break and not utilize everything. So that's, Definitely where, uh, and it, they're very, uh, they're a lot more efficient on memory too. So if you're, like you said, if it's huge amounts of things, it might be either for memory reasons or for speed reasons. These are great. Yeah. So. Yeah. Even computational, like, so suppose you want a list of pedantic objects back and you're like reading some massive CSV and picking each row and star star value in, in there somehow. Um, that's the, the actual creation of the pedantic object. If there was like a million of them forget memory, like even just the computation is expensive. So if you only want the first 20, like you can only pay the price of like initializing the first 20. So there's, there's all sorts of good reasons. Yeah. Okay. I, I do want, I, I do want to just say one thing about generators that I wish there was like a slightly, maybe some kind of behavior could be added, which would be fantastic. So generators can't be reused. Yeah. Right. So if I get a result back from a function, I try to, and I want to ask a question like, were there any items resolved in here? And then loop over them if there were. Like you you kind of broke it, right? You pulled the first one off and then the next thing you work with is like index one through N rather than zero through N, which is, is a problem. So sometimes you need to turn them to a list. It'd be cool if there was like a dot to list on a generator instead of having to call a list on it, right? Just like a way as an expression to kind of like, I'm calling this and it's sort of a data science flow. I want all one expression and you know, turn this generator into this other thing that I need to pass along. That hmm. would be fun. Yeah. So, um, a question out in the the audience that maybe the the returns uh, that um, the dictionary items and keys return something different. But um, Sam Morley says they they return special generators, special kinds of generators. So, yeah. Thanks, Sam. Cool. Indeed. All right. Well, what have I got uh, next? I think I just closed it. Now, would it really be an episode if we didn't talk about Will McGugan in some way or another? So we got him on deck twice, but we're going to start with just something he recommended to us that's actually by Sam Colvin, who is the creator of Pydantic. And I don't know if you're, I'm not sure if you're ready for this, Brian, but this is a little bit dirty. <laughs> it's called Dirty Equals. And the idea is to abuse the Dunder EQ method, mostly around unit testing, to make test cases and assertions and other things you might want to test more declarative and less uh, imperative. Huh. So uh, that all sounds like fun, but how about an example? So it starts out with a trivial example. It says, okay, from this library, you can import something called is positive. So then you could assert one or like some number and whatever, one equal equal is positive. 
That's true. That assert passes. Negative two equal equal is positive fails. Okay. Okay. How does that strike you, Brian? Uh, We're building. These are building blocks. This is like a Lego piece, not the whole um, X-wing. Okay. Fighter. Okay. But anyway, so that's the building block, right? Like, take something and instead of saying yes, it's exactly equal, implement the dunder equal method in the is positive class to like take the value, make sure it's a number, and then check whether it's greater than zero, right? That kind of thing. I don't know if that includes zero, but anyway. But then you can get more interesting things. Like, so you could go to a database, and if you do a query against the database, you get, um, I think in the case that's up there, I think you get a tuple back. It depends on what you set the row factory to be, I suppose. But anyway, um, you get a tuple back of results. Uh, it looks like maybe this is a dictionary. Anyway, so then you can create a, a dictionary that has attributes that are like the result you want. They can either be equal or they can be things like this is positive. So in this case, we're doing a query against the um, database and then we're, looks like there's maybe it needs to be like a first one. Anyway, it says, all right, what we're going to do is we're going to do equal, equal that um, the ID, so we'll create a dictionary, ID colon is positive int, username colon Sam Colvin. So that's an actual equality, like the username has to be Samuel here. Okay. Yeah. And then the avatar is a string that matches a regular expression that's like a mm. some number slash PNG. The settings has to be a JSON thing where inside the settings, it's got some JSON values that you might test for. And that is created now, uh, is, is now with some level of variation, like some level of precision that you're willing to work with, right? Because obviously you run the database query and then you get the result, but it's like very near, <laughs> nearly now, right? It's like the almost equals and float type of stuff. That's pretty cool, right? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Do I, do I need to answer? I mean, I could see the utility. Yeah, share your thoughts. Yeah. But the, um, I don't know. It's the API is a little odd to me. But Okay. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely an interesting idea. It's definitely different. Um, you know, Pydantic is often about, I know it's not Pydantic, but it's by the creator. Pydantic is often about um, given some data that kind of matches, can it be made into that thing? And I feel like this kind of testing is in the same vein as what you might get working with Pydantic and data. Yeah. Right. Well, it's definitely, it's definitely terse and, and, uh, and useful. Um, so, and, and I, I could totally get used to it if this is a, yeah. this is a pretty, pretty, uh, condensed way to, to compare, to see if everything, uh, matches this you know, protocol. Yeah. Yeah. So Sergey on the audience has like sort of the alternative, perspective could be you could just write multiple assert statements instead of creating a dictionary that represents everything you could say like uh get the record back and assert that you know get the first value out and assert on it then get the username out and assert and get the avatar and assert on it and so on and it's sort of an intermediate view uh story where you use the testing libraries the testing classes uh, but sort of more explicit so right and one of the reasons why a lot of people there's there's a couple reasons why to not use more than one assert um, because if you were to have multiple asserts, the first one to fail stops the check. It's possible that this will tell you everything that's, that's wrong, not just the first thing that's wrong. Yes, exactly. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, some people are just opposed to multiple asserts per test. It's just for, you know, yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, it, a similar thing. So I, I have a, a plugin called PyTest check. 
uh, which is um, is just it uses checks instead of asserts, so that, that you can have multiple checks per test. But mm-hmm. um, it does come up, so this is this is interesting. I I'll definitely check it out and play with it. Yeah, another benefit of being able to construct one of these like prototypical documents or uh, dictionaries that then represents the the declarative behavior or state that you're supposed to be testing for is you could create one of these and then use it in different locations. Like, okay, when I insert a record and then I get it back out, it should be like this. But also if I call the API and it gives me something back, it should also still pass the same test. Like you could have a different parts of my app. They all need to look like this. Yeah. As opposed to having a bunch of tests over and over that are effectively the same. And Will is here who recommended this suggests uh, one of the benefits of dirty equals is that PyTest will generate useful diffs from it. Yeah, uh, and definitely. Um, reasons, PyTest being a reason to use something, um, I'm on board then. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, check it out. If, if you do play with uh, it, uh, give us a report how you yeah. feel about it. One more question yeah. from uh, Sam, uh, said uh, Sam Morley. Uh, PyTest already has something a bit like this with a prox. Um, except for it's for floats, et cetera, except for a proxy is not, et cetera. It's just for floats. So you can only use a yeah. proxy with floats. So Yeah. So we have like approximate yeah. now and stuff like yeah. that. So is it, yeah, I'll, I'll try it, especially, you know, if Will likes it, it's got to be good. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so Awesome. All right. What's the final one you got for us here? Okay, this is more of a question than a, I'm not like saying this is awesome, but I, I ran across this, um, actually this, so I, I, I went, I clicked on a listicle, uh, Mike, I think there's a self-help group for that. Um, yeah, I, uh, well, we're definitely <laughs> prone to clicking on the top yeah. listicles. Of yeah, theories. so my you name know, is Brian, awesome, yes, awesome that and so I clicked on, yeah. on a listicle. Um, so the, the <laughs> listicle was a uh, top 10, where are we at? Uh, it was a, uh, uh, 10 tools I wish I knew when I started working with Python. And actually, it's a good list. I just knew about most of them is all. So it's, 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 we'll link to it anyway. It's a decent. It's got decent the sound list. of music. It's got Jackie Chan. It's got Office Space. Come on. This is a pretty yeah. solid listicle. Let's well, get then real. I got down to number seven and eight, and I'm like, what are these things? I've never heard of them. So, uh, committison and semantic release. So, um, the, the idea, so the, I, I tried, to do a commit with this. So committison is a thing that you can say, if you install it, you can either brew install it for your everything, or you can put it in a virtual environment. So that's cool. But it's, um, you, you, instead of just committing, you use this to commit and it asks you questions. Right. Instead of typing git space commit, you type CZ space commit. Yeah. And then instead of like it, and it asks you a whole bunch of stuff. It was this a bug fix fix. Was it a feature? Did you, and then it, it follows on what, depending on what you answered, if you had a, if you had a, uh, a bug fix or a feature, is it a breaking right. feature? Did you, basically it's trying to, it's, it, it's doing a whole bunch of stuff, but it's trying to do these, uh, conventional, uh, conventional commits. And we've got a link to this too. And, and then if you've got all this formatting, so it ends up formatting your commit message to a consistent format so that when you're reading the history and stuff. Uh, oh, cool. you, know, whole, you can do a whole bunch of, uh, it's easier, I guess. Um, and then, uh, this tool also, uh, this listicle also commented that you've got uh semantic release, which is a Python package that I ha- haven't got th- through this much, but it, it can take this, um, uh, all this information from these and do some, 
better control your semantic release notes or release. I don't know if it's the release notes or just the release version. I haven't got that far into it, but yeah, the commit is an ask. Is this a, like a change corresponding to semantic versions such that it should be a major change? So it'll like, it looks like it'll increment the version and stuff like that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but so uh, the, in the about uh, for commit says command line utility to create, commits with your rules and apparently you can you can spec- specify some special rules which is good uh display information about your commits uh bump the version automatically and uh, generate a change log that's cool i want that might be helpful um so my questions out to the audience and everybody listening um have you used something like this is it useful uh, is there something different than this that you recommend? And also what size of a project would this make sense for a small or medium project? That's cool. Like yeah. That. Let us know on Twitter or at the bottom of the YouTube live stream. It's yeah. the best place. Yep. So, yeah, very cool. Now, before you go on, I also have a question out to you. You can be the proxy for the audience here. Okay. Notice at the bottom, it says requirements three, six and above. Uh, right? Yeah. And Python. That, that's not, I don't feel like that's very controversial as three, six is not even supported anymore. Right. Right. So this is like every possibly supported version of Python 3, this works for. Would What would you think if I said the requirement is this is Python 3? Not Python 3, just it requires Python 3. Knowing that like that means or implying that that means supported shipping real versions of Python, not Python 3.1, right? Because obviously Python 3.1 is no longer supported, but neither is 3.5 even. Like, could you say F strings are just in Python 3 now without worrying about the version or do you need to, you still need to say three six plus three six three seven like should this be updated to be three seven you know i mean you kind of have to you think so i i don't know i i, I know i when i say uh something is on three python three actually i don't even say that anymore so yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. what do you think okay uh well i used it in the sense like yeah you need python three for this thinking well any version that's m- supported these days and people are like well there's older versions that don't support this thing like well you know obviously i'm not talking about the one that was not supported five years ago like at some point yeah python 3 is the the supported version of python i don't know oh that's true yeah okay so that's a bit of a a diversion there but i I went down that rat hole and it's like i really don't know which way i should go but i feel like there's there's a case to be made that just like when you talk about python 3 you're not talking about old unsupported versions you're Everything that's like modern, three seven and above, should be like an an uh, an alias for Python three. I don't know. When we were just uh, saying Python three, what we meant was like three one. So I, I know we got to get used to that. There's no uh, Python two really yeah. to, to worry about. All right. Well, that will definitely bring us to our extras, won't it? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, you want me to kick it off since I got my screen up? Yeah. Go ahead. All right. So Will, like I said, he gets two appearances and. Uh, also, it's common. So thank you for that. And this is like in the same vein of what I was just talking about. Like, what is this convention that we want to have, right? So the Walrus operator came out in 3.8, and it was kind of an interesting big deal, right? There's a lot of um, debate around whether or not that should be in the language. Honestly, I think it's a pretty minor thing that that's not a, not a huge deal. But the idea is you can both test for a variable as well, or you use the test or use the value of the variable in the same place that you create it. So instead of saying X equals get user or like U equals get user, if user is not none or if user, you could just say if U colon equals get user, do the true thing. Otherwise, then it's it's not set right. And so 
Will is suggesting that uh, we pronounce the walrus operator as U becomes the value. So like X colon equals seven is like X becomes seven. What do you think? Are you behind this? Okay, so you'd be like, uh, when you're reading your code to yourself, I yes. guess. How do you say it? Like if you say yeah. um, like uh, the lambda expression, like how do you like define like the, the variables of the lambda? Like there's, there's right. terms around there that are, make it a little bit hard to say without just saying syntax, right? So X he's becomes. proposing like becomes is the, the saying the verbal the way we verbalize walrus operator i, I it, like it i'm gonna give it a thumbs up it's so interesting I, but what how is that different from assignment though do we do you say what do you say with assignment i don't say like x it, equals i don't know yeah equals um assign become becomes works um all right well I'll put it out there people can think about it and there's a there's a nice twitter thread here with uh, lots of comments uh so folks can <laughs> jump in or you could just walrus, just talk X walrus five. Um, oh, yeah. No. Well, what do walruses do? I mean, <laughs> is there like a cool action that would is like particular Walrus-y. to walruses? Well, there probably is, but it's not doesn't apply to this. I, it's not very colloquial, is it? Is <laughs> uh, X. Yeah. And John, then John Sheehan out the audience says, in my brain, I use assigned to and he must know what's coming because he's up next. <laughs> Hey, John. Uh, so the other thing I want to talk about is, did you know, I learned through John, that string starts with will take a an iterable, it says tuple, but I suspect it might even be an iterable of substrings. And if any of them match, it will, uh, it'll test out to be true. So like A, B, C, D, E, F, you say starts with a tuple, A, B, or C, D, or E, F. Huh. I've never used this. I didn't know that that was I would thing. always just do that as like, X starts with AB or X starts with CD or X starts with EF. No, you apparently can do that all in one go. What's the two for? Um, I have no idea. Oh, okay. I was just thinking that as well. There's a two and I don't know where it, what it's for. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, anyway, that's a super quick one, but I thought uh, pretty interesting there. Yeah. So, uh, that's all I got. How about you? I just have one thing. That I, we don't need to put it up, but all right. my extra is this book. You have your physical 2.0 book in hand. Yes, I've got. I've. Oh yeah, and for the people not uh, not watching, um, my I've got a stack of. Uh, it's funny. My 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 daughter uses my Amazon account too. So UPS said, "Hey, there's a package arriving yesterday," and I said, uh, "I didn't." And I didn't order anything. So yeah. I said, um, "I told my daughter, hey, uh, you probably have a package showing up.'" She's like, "I didn't order anything." Um, and then th- this box arrives with five copies of my book, which is great. So, That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Congratulations. Thanks. Very cool. Yeah. We abuse our Amazon account badly. Like there's a lot of people that log into the Amazon account. We end up getting stuff shipped wrong places because somebody shipped it to their house last time. And then we just hit reorder again. And like, why do you have our shampoo? I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So John adds that the uh, two is the starting position. Oh, the starting position. Yeah, right. I figured it had something to do with that. I wasn't sure how many characters to compare out, whatever. Well, I awesome. also didn't Thanks. know if the that you could pass a starting position for starts with. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot going on here. Almost starts All right. with. Um, All yeah, nearly starts with. Yeah, what's the what's the nearly what's the right way? So I want to close this out with a a joke as always. But there's the joke we talked about a while ago, where's. Uh, Sebastian Ramirez, creator of Fast API, saw an ad 
hiring a fast API developer. And he said, oh, it looks like I can't apply for this job. It requires four years of experience with fast API, but I can't possibly have that because I only created it two years ago, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's a little bit in that vein. So here we have um, somebody uh, tweeting and says, here's a conversation with the recruiter and them. It says, uh, recruiter, do you have a CS background? <laughs> yes, absolutely. My CS background. And this is a screenshot from the game Counter-Strike, which is often <laughs> referred to as just CS. Yeah, of course I got a CS background. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> that's so, pretty good i love it yeah um yeah that's a good one well uh, just a question though if you if you did fast api instead of eight hours a day if you did it 16 hours a day for oh, yeah. two years would that constitute you know, four years of that experience? probably that probably is about the same amount of experience yeah, yeah. so what a slacker that sebastian is <laughs> does he have to <laughs> eat or something does he have family what's going on come on <laughs> Well, always fun awesome. with uh, hanging out with you and talking Python. So you bet. And thanks to everybody on the uh, that listens to it on on their podcast player or watches us on YouTube. So yeah, thanks. absolutely. See you later. Bye.